Um, I realize that this uh, text is about a time after Jesus has been born, and here we are celebrating Advent. But when I think of people whose lives were caught up in the Advent story, Simeon and Anna just leap off the page, and I did not have the heart to leave them out. So here they are. I don't know about you, but, um, but I love decorating for Christmas. Pulling those boxes and bins out of storage and opening them up is, uh, is pure magic for me. Waves of nostalgia wash over me as my house is transformed with snowmen, Santas, and nativities. So many of the ornaments that we decorate with are filled with memory. Some of them going back to the earliest days of my childhood. And of course the magic is further amplified by Andy Williams crooning in the background and gingerbread cooking in the oven. Now, putting away Christmas, that's a whole other thing. Somewhere between uh, December 26th and New Year's Day, you begin to ask yourself, now why is there a dead tree in my living room? One minute the tree feels romantic and beautiful, and then the next minute it gets thrown out the door like a kid at a club with a fake ID. The decorations go back into storage, your in-laws go back to Michigan, you go back on your diet and back to work, and then right about the middle of January, the credit card bill comes. And the worst part of Christmas is paying for Christmas. Believe it or not, the exact same dynamic gets played out in Luke's gospel. The first chapter and a half resonate with hope and fulfillment. There's wonder and expectation in the midst of two miraculous pregnancies. It seems like everyone is being visited by angels and singing inspired songs. And then all of a sudden, Luke puts Christmas back in the box. There are no more heavenly hosts singing glory to God in the highest. No more shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. No more heavenly hosts singing Uh, No more mangers, no more swaddling clothes and virgin mothers treasuring things in their hearts. Very quickly, almost, almost jarringly, Luke forces his readers to deal with the cost of Christmas. And just like that credit card bill that comes due in January, we're forced to deal with the reality that Christmas does not come cheap. Our passage today begins with the proud parents faithful pilgrimage to the temple, and it ends with a a dark cloud of foreboding. When Jesus was six weeks old, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple. It was standard procedure for Jewish families. Fred Craddock has a playful way of imagining this scene, and I'll paraphrase. Mary must have been nervous, it you know, being her first baby and all. Now, where do I stand, Joseph? What what are they going to do? I don't have to say anything, do I? No, no, Mary, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Just, uh, you know, just stand there and hold the baby. The priest will do his thing. Uh, You'll be purified. Jesus will be dedicated. It's no big deal. Well, I'm nervous. What if he catches cold? We haven't taken him out like this before. He's only six weeks old. Why Why don't they wait until he's older? Just stand up there, Mary. He'll be fine, I promise. They go up to the temple, and there's this old man, Simeon, old as the hills, big roomy eyes, long gray beard, a little bit of spittle in it. Simeon's shuffling around the temple because in his heart, God has said, you will not die 
until you see the consolation of Israel. So there he is, frightening all the mothers. Every time he sees a blue blanket, he runs over. Oh, it's a boy, it's a boy. Let me see, let me see, let me see. He sees Mary and he shuffles over. Let me hold him, he wheezes. And then he reaches out his trembling hands and Mary somewhat reluctantly hands him over, praying that he won't drop him. His eyes dart around the baby's face and then something seizes him. And the old man begins to sob and laugh and then sing. My eyes have seen salvation. Now I can die in peace. Mary and Joseph squeeze each other's hands. I wonder how many people were watching. You can almost imagine the reactions. Now what's all the commotion over there? Don't those people know that this is a place of worship? Oh, it's just another grandfather busting his buttons about a new grandson. Think anyone else noticed what was going on? Anna did. Anna, who was a wife for seven years and a widow for much longer. She spent so much time praying and fasting at the temple, people used to joke that God never did anything without consulting her first. It had been years since Anna had stood up straight. Years since she had climbed the temple steps without pain. But spiritually, she was in her prime. When she walked up to Mary, the hairs on the back of Mary's neck stood up straight. Thank the Lord that he's here. That's all she said. She leaned forward to kiss Jesus on the forehead. It's a miracle she didn't fall over. This is too weird, said Joseph. This is wonderful, said Mary. Mary and Joseph needed Simeon and Anna, ancient people of faith who'd been waiting for this moment their whole lives. And Simeon and Anna needed Mary and Joseph, young, insecure, and bearing salvation. Exactly what their tired eyes and tired souls needed to see. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. For before them breaks a new and glorious morn. Too old and frail to fall to their knees, Simeon and Anna's praise soars to the heavens. Simeon's song is beautiful beyond words. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. To see Jesus is to see salvation. There's joy even in the face of death when you behold the face of life. 2019 has had plenty of death. And darkness. Through December 1st of this year, there had been 385 mass shootings in the U.S. in 335 days. That's more than one a day. That's never happened before. 
add to that devastating hurricanes and wildfires, an ongoing opioid epidemic, a, a fractured populace, deep partisan divides, rampant distrust and incivility and impeachment hearings. For many years, Jodina Hicks lived and worked among the poorest of the poor in Camden, New Jersey, a city that knows all about racially motivated violence. A few years ago on Christmas Eve, she wrote this. Egregious immigration policies, state-sponsored killing of minority boys, alienation of religious minorities, a leader who abuses power in order to keep his office, vulnerable families going underground or, or moving to other countries out of fear. This was the fear-filled environment of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Who would protect the least, the lost, the left out? Would a savior come at such a time as this? And of course the answer is yes. To see Jesus is to see salvation. There's joy even in the face of suffering and uncertainty when you behold the face of God. But Luke doesn't tell this story to make us smile. He tells this story to make us ready. Before he leaves them, Simeon pulls Mary aside. And with a seriousness that only the elderly can muster, he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. As Simeon speaks, the dark shadow of the cross falls on Jesus and Mary. Israel's hope and consolation will not come cheap. A sword will pierce Mary's soul as years later she watches her son suffer rejection, torture, and death. This young mother will one day bury her child. A sword will pierce Mary's soul as she watches her own people reject God's precious gift. One day Jesus would weep over Jerusalem, saying, if only you had known what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And with that, Christmas is over. God's cornerstone will become a stumbling stone to many and the story of salvation will be laced with pain for those who are closest to the action. Imagine bringing your newborn to church next week to be dedicated. And after the service, one of the elders pulls you off to the side and says, your child is going to split this church in two. And then the church is going to tear your heart right down the middle. I mean, how would you respond? You can almost imagine a sympathetic grandmother scolding Simeon after the fact. Now, why'd you have to go and do that for Simeon? It was such a nice day. The priest did such a lovely job. Why'd you have to ruin it like that? Because that child came into the world to die. 
to give his life for mine. The worst part of Christmas is paying for Christmas. Christmas comes at a terrible cost. The Apostle John says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The Apostle Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a stone that causes men to fall. Christmas comes at a terrible cost. Israel's hope and consolation comes by way of suffering, rejection, and death. The greatest joy through the greatest trial. The cross before the crown. So what do we do with this uh, comforting and disturbing story? Let's talk about uh, three implications. And the first has to do with vocation. Mary is called to be the mother of Jesus. Joseph is called to marry a pregnant virgin and help raise her son. Anna is called to be a widow and to fast and to pray for a long, long time. Simeon is called to wait and hope and then finally, at the end of his life, to sing. What about you? What is your life all about? What is God calling you to do? This idea that we live our lives in response to a call from outside ourselves is a huge part of what it means to be a Christian. Our first calling is to follow Jesus and to make him our our highest loyalty. Our second calling is more specific, and it might change from season to season. But a calling means that our lives are not our own. The purpose of your life is not to make a name for yourself. It's not to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. The purpose of your life is not self-actualization or self-fulfillment, but self-denial. Sometimes that means setting aside our ambitions and hopes and plans so that we can do what God would have us do. What's your life all about? What is God calling you to do? Students, right now, your calling is to develop a heart and a mind for God and to develop competence and tools with which to serve your neighbors. Please don't waste your youth by trying to fit in with people who love you conditionally. Please don't exhaust yourself building a resume for college as if your identity and worth could fit onto an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Please don't waste your life crafting a persona on social media. Discover who God made you to be and the gifts that he's given you and share them with the world with as much integrity and authenticity as you can muster. Don't wait until you're older. We need your gifts now. 
Find someone you admire and sit at their feet. Get close to someone who's weathered a storm or two and find out who else is in their boat. Hunker down with a few friends that you trust and do something hard that makes a difference in the world. And don't be afraid to fail. Do you have a job? Work is one of the best ways we have of loving our neighbors day in and day out indiscriminately. Work with excellence and integrity so that the people around you flourish. Whether you're managing wealth or cleaning toilets. And do your best work even when the boss isn't looking. As though you're working for the Lord. All of us are called to love, to seek other people's good. Right now that might mean raising kids or caring for an elderly family member befriending someone who's lonely, helping an immigrant find their way, visiting the sick or imprisoned. It's interesting that Luke introduces us to two people who were called to wait and hope. Israel's prophets kept promising that no matter what became of Israel politically, there would always be a remnant of those who trusted God And believed in his promises. And maybe that's why God kept Anna and Simeon alive as long as he did. To keep Israel's hope alive. To have someone around to recognize Jesus when he appeared. Someone to give Mary and Joseph that shot in the arm. That sanity check. Some assurance that they weren't crazy that they hadn't been hearing voices, that they didn't make it up, that the baby in Mary's arms really was heaven's king, that God really was fulfilling his age-old promises. You know, trusting and obeying an invisible God can be a really lonely occupation. Anna and Simeon helped Mary and Joseph to know that they weren't alone. There's an acute shortage of hope in our day. Do you feel it? Why do you think so many people are trying so hard to self-medicate and numb and distract themselves? I have friends who have run out of hope. I bet you do too. I think sometimes God calls us to walk alongside people who are hopeless. And without minimizing what they're going through, we can perhaps help them to see beyond the obstacles and the fractures and the pain that are overwhelming them. And we can assure them that their pain is not what defines them, that their past doesn't dictate their future, that God is faithful and that good will ultimately prevail. Maybe God's calling you to be Sam to someone else's Frodo. Whatever your calling is right now, it is holy, even if it feels small and inconsequential. Mary had a calling, and Joseph, and Anna, and Simeon. Most people around them were clueless. But as they answered their call, their lives got caught up in God's work of redemption. What is God calling you to do? What's your life all about? 
How does it connect to God's big picture? The second implication I want us to look at is for those of us who are retired. You know, the concept of retirement is foreign to the Bible. At least the kind of retirement that is ultimately concerned with playing golf and collecting shells. That doesn't mean we can't downshift or rest as we get older. It just means that God isn't done with us when we turn 65. Simeon and Anna are proof of that. Proof that often our most productive years in spiritual service come after our most productive years of physical service. I am sure that at one point Anna was a youth worker. She probably went on retreats and did all-nighters with teenagers and then and she got a little old for that and started volunteering in the nursery. And eventually bending over to pick up babies was too difficult, put too much of a strain on her back, so she joined the missions committee. And then one day her doctor, her eye doctor, told her she couldn't drive at night, so she had to give that up. But however she got there, Anna wound up living out her years as a full-time intercessory prayer warrior. She got a, a list of names from the church office every week. She prayed with people after they came forward at the end of the service. She wrote notes to people when they got sick and to new mothers and to teenagers when they got their driver's license. And when her arthritis made writing impossible, she kept praying. And people say it all the time. Oh, I wish I could do something besides just pray. Friend, when your prayer can be coupled with action, that's wonderful. But when it can't, your prayers are still a mighty gift. And they matter. Keep praying. In all the churches I've been in, there have been elderly women who prayed, who prayed circles around the pastors and the elders, who prayed the sick back to health, who prayed prodigals back home and family members back together. And I shudder to think what our churches and communities would look like without these elderly women who could do nothing but pray. If you're just entering retirement, this is the perfect time to say, okay, God, what's next? What's my next assignment? What would you have me do? Who have you given me to love? Don't be surprised if God's first assignment is to rest. Don't be surprised if your second assignment is to pour into people. You might be done going to work from eight to five, but God is not done with you. Finally, this passage forces the issue of how we respond to Jesus. Jesus is the most divisive person in history. For some, he is the cornerstone of a brand new life. For others, he is a tripping stone, a stumbling block that they just can't get over. But everyone who encounters Jesus is thrown into a crisis of decision. Do I need a savior? Do I need to be rescued, forgiven, set free? Do I need a master? Someone to guide me and teach me and show me how life works best? You can't not answer these questions. Can you stand on your own two feet? Are you qualified to run your own life? If you answer yes, you're out. Do you need help? 
the world tells us that we're basically good. We're just, uh, you know, a, a tweak or two away from perfection. But the gospel says that I am so flawed and so broken that Jesus had to die for me. And yet I am so loved, so valued, so precious to him that he was glad to die for me. Who do you believe? You can't ignore the question. Either you take hold of that baby and bask in the wonder of it all, like Anna and Simeon, or you sense the threat that he poses to your autonomy and get rid of him, like Herod did. Have you held the baby? Have you gazed into his eyes and seen your salvation? Have you let the baby hold you? In a few weeks, it will be time to put Christmas back in the box. As you do, remember that the angels and the shepherds and the manger had to be put away too. And then sometime in January, you'll get a credit card bill in the mail. And as you open it up, remember that Christmas has already been paid for. Joy, unspeakable joy, has come for you. Simeon was right. Salvation comes at a cost. First the cross, then the crown. First suffering, then glory. Before Jesus began his public ministry, Satan made him an offer. He said, worship me, and I will give you all the nations. You can skip all the suffering, all the rejection, all the death that your Father in heaven has planned for you, the sadist. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut. And Jesus didn't take it. He took the long road, the hard road, because we don't need another king who lords his power over his constituents. We need a king who will lay down his life for his people. Communion servants, would you come forward? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. When he'd given thanks, he took that Passover wine and said, this is the new covenant which I am establishing in my blood, a covenant of grace. Apostle Paul says, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we participate in this meal, we can rejoice, just like Anna and Simeon did. Because God has appeared, just as he promised he would, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this.